mighty Lord and everlasting one. You are the incarnate word who has come, lived, died, resurrected, ascended, intercedes, has sent us by your Holy Spirit, your word. We come now, Lord, in our study to Genesis chapter 4, in which we must learn what it means to disregard and throw away unbelief and that we would embrace belief in you and that we would keep an eye on our brother as we so find Cain not doing these things. We pray, O Lord, that you would aid us, your people, to do these things. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning in all of this, that the word may be preached according to truth, and that it may be heard with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we may leave here this morning with something that you would wish us to know, that we may be the better for it. We so ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 4, 1 to 16. We're going to read this passage concerning Cain. beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what, is, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The point of Genesis chapter 4 demonstrates the spread of sin from the family to society itself. It's infectious. The development of the narrative in and of itself demonstrates this 
parallel between Cain and Abel. Cain's birth, then Abel's birth. Abel's occupation, then Cain's occupation. Cain's offering, then Abel's offering. Abel's acceptance, Cain's rejection. Cain's anger, Abel's death. And then Cain is seen as the epitome of hostile unbelief. Unbelief is opposed to God's will and becomes anger over God's approval of those that are more faithful. In the first five verses, we see this unfolding. A part of this narrative demonstrates the occasion of the crime itself. That's what verses 1 through 4 and verse 5 demonstrate. One brother pleased God and found acceptance. But the other brother, thinking himself to be just as acceptable, was filled with envy and with rage. Unrighteous men, if they believe themselves to be self-righteous, that will always happen. They will always fall into jealousy. They will always fall into anger. And they will always do that against the things of God. In the first couple of verses, we find the birth of the children. Genesis chapter 4, 1 and 2. Adam knew his wife. She gave birth, bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She bore again and had Abel. Now, this knowing Eve is the same kind of knowing in Amos 3.2 and Romans 8.29. The intimate relationship. Adam simply did not know his wife Eve. He knew his wife Eve very intimately. And as a result of that intimacy, she became pregnant. And as a result of that pregnancy, she had Cain. She gives birth to Cain and she says, I have acquired a male child from the Lord. She thought the way that this verse is constructed in conjunction with what God had said in Genesis 3, that this was the seed. Here was the one that God had said. The promise is coming true. Ironically enough, the child was Cain. The child was named Cain with the sentiment of the mother being, I have created a man with the Lord. And Eve's statement is full of hope. It's full of faith. She says, in effect... God made man, and now with the help of the Lord, I have made the second man, the one who is going to come. Cain, by virtue of being the firstborn, was considered a work of the Lord God himself. The firstborn will carry that idea all through the scriptures. She then continues to bear children, and she has Abel as well, but there's nothing said about Abel. Then, it goes into their occupations. Because the narrative, again, is about Cain and Abel. Their occupations are very interesting, especially in the way that Moses had set this up, going back and forth between the two. Cain is a tiller of the ground, but Abel is a keeper of the sheep. Now, with either of those occupations, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It could be either. Both were important. There's a hint, though, of the place of each man in the nature of things. Cain lines up with an occupation that resulted from the fall. Genesis 3.23, he's a tiller of the ground. But Abel, with men's and women's original purpose of having dominion over the animals. Interesting that they're set up in that way. As men and women were supposed to have dominion over the earth, so Abel has dominion over these animals and continues the substitutionary atonement in killing those animals as sacrifice. Cain, though, is set in line 
with what happened at the fall and the curse. He is a tiller of the ground. Then, in verses 3 to 5, in the process of time it came to pass that they brought their offerings. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected it. But he didn't respect Cain's offering. Cain's offering was of the ground. And Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. The second part demonstrates here the occasion of the murder. What is Cain really like? This is what Cain is really like. Here, at this special time, God had set up a time of worship. He had set up a specific God-appointed time. It's the Hebrew idea here. In the process of time, there was a specific time when they were supposed to come and bring their offerings. And so they did. The offerings themselves are the Hebrew word that's used all through Leviticus as an acceptable offering. So it wasn't the offering necessarily in and of itself. The Hebrew construction describes Abel's offering as being elaborate. It took some thinking and some time. The writer seems to be making clear that Abel went out of his way to please God. It's the idea that he brought the fattest of the firstlings of his flock. Later, the Lord required that worshippers give the best that they had to God, which included the firstborn of the flock, which was the fattest or healthiest of the flock. You can see that in Exodus 13 or Leviticus 22. It's what God wanted, the best. But in contrast to Abel's offering, Cain's is simply mentioned. He brought an offering of the food of the ground. It seems that it was simply part of his duty to do so. And so he did. Cain took some time to gather up a few bushels of wheat, threw it on a plate, and offered it up to the Lord. Abel thought about what he did. He offered what God wanted that was pleasing there was something wrong with Cain's attitude and motivation, and so God rebukes him. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. The text does not specifically mention how Abel's sacrifice was respected by God or what happened to show them that God respected one and not the other. It just says that he did. Maybe as in the Levitical offerings, maybe fire came down and consumed Abel's burnt offerings, but nothing happened with Cain's. Maybe God simply spoke to them. In any case, God respects Abel's and does not respect Cain's. And so, what's the response? Cain's wicked response in verse 5. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, Cain has a lack of belief here in God's word, and it's demonstrated in his jealousy over his brother's acceptance. This is after the fall, and probably not very long, simply in the process of time, the first recorded sin. And it demonstrates 
a total and complete unbelief and disregard for God's word and for what God had commanded them. Fig leaves, remember, were not enough. God had to slay an animal and kill two animals and, and cover Adam and Eve. God interrogates Cain in verses 6 through 8 and gives some needful instruction to him. He tells him, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, will sin lies at the door and it's desirous for you, but you should rule over it. Cain was very angry that Abel was accepted and he wasn't. But God was instructing him, do what is right and you will master sin. You have to have dominion over sin. Just because men fall does not mean God is going to stop talking to men as if they are not fallen, which he does throughout the rest of the word, throughout the rest of history. Just because they're not righteous doesn't mean that suddenly God gives up his character. No, he's not going to give up his character. His law is going to remain the same. They're going to still be required to do what is right according to the law. And so he tells them that sin lies at the door. And the imagery that's used is the imagery of an animal creeping, lying at the door, being deceptive. Ring a bell? Like the serpent that barred paradise. Sin must be mastered. As Adam and Eve had not mastered the serpent in the garden, sin now creeps around ready to spring upon us, ready to spring upon Cain, and has to be mastered. God reminds Cain of the fall by telling him that sin is like an animal ready to pounce, and he must have mastery over it, like the woman's curse, having desire over her husband with those same words. He is to have mastery over sin. But in verse 8, Cain demonstrates his seared conscience. God warned him to master a sin, and instead he unfolded a plan to murder his brother. Sin got the best of him. And it parallels in this whole section exactly the same thing that happened in Genesis 3. There was a speech, there was a circumstance, and there was a sin. Exactly the same thing. That happens with Cain. Unbelief always hates the law of God. Verse 9. After the murder, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? As Adam, where are you? What have you done, Eve? All of the questions that God uses to draw out of them a confession. And of course, Cain does not give the confession Instead, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain denies the question. But he should have said, yes, I am my brother's keeper. Here's, here's where he is. Safe and sound. Two peas in a pod. But instead, he had killed his brother. And as a result, denies what the Lord asks him. Unbelief rails against the punishment given by God in verses 10 through 14. God questions him, what is it that you've done? 
The blood of Abel cries out from the ground. It's impossible that God would not know these things. It doesn't literally cry out in terms of blood actually having a voice. But because God is omnipresent, when injustice is done and anything contrary to the holiness of God, it is very evident. So now he says you're cursed. And he curses them and he, and he causes him to be a fugitive and he places a mark on him so that anyone who sees him will know who it is. The blood of Abel testified of Cain's actions. That's what it was. Cain couldn't hide what he had done. He couldn't hide it any more than the fig leaves could have hidden what Adam and Eve had done. Stuff like that doesn't work. Abel's blood, instead, is crying out to God, and God, as a result, moves very quickly from an accusation to judgment. As if the insolent answer that Cain had given indicated there wasn't going to be a confession from him. And there wasn't. He simply denied it. Following the curse, Cain will also have a hard time living life. The very basics of life itself. The blood-soaked ground was crying out to God, and so God cursed the ground again for Cain. The abundant fertility would be hindered greatly, and Cain would have great difficulties with the Hebrew ideas. He would have great difficulty just scratching the ground for his food. He was a tiller of the ground. He knew how to do it. He was industrious in it. He had grown all sorts of different things which he offered up to the Lord. So he was a good planter and a good harvester. God is telling him now that he's going to have great difficulty even scratching out of the ground his food. Cain is going to be a ceaseless, wandering fugitive. So the murderer is banished from the fertile land and he has to flee as a result. They are exiled out of the garden. He is exiled out of the garden, out of the garden. And he flees. And he protests, amazingly enough, in verses 13 and 14. My punishment is too great to bear, Cain says. The punishment is a lamentable state that's worse than death. It's unbearable, as Cain explains, to be driven away. Meant that he had to sever all relationships with his family, and more importantly, the blessing of God. See, these, even though these people have fallen, and even though this is the first generation, they are intimately aware of the presence of the Lord. The Lord's talking with Cain. Who's Cain? He's this murderer, wicked, evil man. And now he's going to be severed from that intimacy altogether. A type of hell. In verses 15 to 16, unbelief continues, amazingly enough, under divine protection. Genesis 4, 15 to 16. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod in the east of Eden. The Lord protected Cain so that he would survive and that his punishment would ensue. It's going to measure the crime. Cain still defied God. 
even at that point, he still defied God. And he went off, and he went to the land of Nod, and he built a city, as the next section that we'll study next week shows. And there's an ironic play on words here. Nod is also the same idea as fugitive. So even though he attempted to build a city and escape, he was supposed to be a wandering fugitive, he actually set a landmark for being a fugitive from the Lord. The very existence of the city demonstrates that. But God desires that he live out his life with the fullest intentions of fulfilling everything that this lamentable state would bring upon him in not having the blessings of the Lord all through his life. That's the narrative demonstrating the wickedness of unbelief. There are a couple of doctrines that I want to pull out of the text. Two, in fact. We're going to talk about them very briefly and then we'll talk about applying them to a longer extent. The first is without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. Those who are without faith are in rebellion against God, just as Cain. Those who are unregenerate do not have the Holy Spirit. They cannot have faith. They are merely outwardly religious. These are, in essence, even from Genesis 3.15 onward, gospel hypocrites. Cain was the first. Those who desire to worship God rightly in every area and action of their life must have their goal to please God, to glorify God, not simply to fulfill a particular duty that's supposed to take place. Sin will work its wicked ways into the life of the Christian if it's not cast out. So we take the example from Cain himself. And envy and hatred will work their ruinous ways into the lives of everyone who is merely outward in their religiosity, as Cain was. Think about when you were in school. Very simply, young children, 7th grade, 8th grade, the teacher gives a test, and there's one smart student in the class, and he gets an A, and everybody else gets a C or a D or fails the quiz, and what do they all do? They all come up to him, pat him on the back, say, oh, well, good, good job, good job. No, they don't do that. They get angry. They get jealous. They begin to hate that one. Anytime a person is filled with envy and anger over God's blessing on others, there will be disaster if that anger is allowed to run its course. Cain demonstrates that. He becomes the abiding example of this pattern and what will happen if unbelief towards God's word in connection with your brother continues. Secondly, Christians, those abiding by the word of God as Abel did, as Cain was supposed to, are supposed to be keepers of their brethren which is very blatant in the climax of the passage. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to God's question is that he's here, right here, safe and sound. I am my brother's keeper. The unity that Cain should have had with Abel, and they had a discussion in the field, what the text says, 
shouldn't come to the conclusion that the next time that Cain offered something up to the Lord, that it was done rightly, and that he did take the Lord's advice, and that he did overcome sin, and that he did become master of it. But that's not what happened. The Apostle John, all through the New Testament, focuses on the theme of love for the brethren, and even uses Cain as an example of what not to do. In 1 John chapter 3, 11 to 13, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. So, the Apostle John himself uses that very theme, this very theme, for all of the New Testament, and a demonstration of how we are to love our brethren, serve God in righteousness, serve God in a holy manner, serve God in the way that he has required. This comes down to loving one another. What are the greatest commandments? To love God and to love one another. The devout must expect that the wicked will oppose them in every way. And they will. That's why John even says that. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. When you do what is right, they will hate you. Abel did what is right. Cain hated him. But don't be like Cain. Instead, love one another. And this, the whole use of the story in the New Testament is, is certainly at the heart of that message. It's the heart of the message, not simply part of the message. Right from the very beginning... Such should have been the case. But Cain allowed sin to master him, which is always the problem with the fall and with the depravity of man. Those two things, those two important aspects. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and Christians are to be keepers of their brethren. Let's look at these in our own life and take a little time just to think about it. It's really what we would call the doctrine of selfless love. The doctrine of selfless love. Where is your brother? I suppose that's the first question you have to ask. Just as Jesus said. Remember bringing the cup of water? Clothing them? Visiting them? For the least of these, my brethren, he says, are brothers. As if Cain should have known where he was, what he was doing. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his protector? Am I to exercise care over that person? Am I to treat him as if I was to care for my own property? Am I his keeper too? Well, the answer to that question is yes. That's what we are. Yes. In everything that we do, we are to selflessly love our brethren. In everything. Cain asked a question which he was supposed to fulfill, making it all the more ironic. And when we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we don't do that, we act like Cain. We have a small congregation here today. But if you've watched the news, maybe you've heard the news that there's a murderer loose. Maybe you've not. There's actually a murderer sitting in our congregation this morning. And I really mean that. Just this other day, somebody murdered somebody. 
It's only a few of us here. The person didn't think that anybody saw him do it. But he did. And I have a written statement from eyewitnesses that I'm going to read. Here's what it says. Quote, Everybody who hates his brother is a murderer. 1 John 3.15 All of us, at some way and at some point, have done the very thing that Cain had done. That's why Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, thinking that, oh, just because you pick up a hammer and hit somebody over the head and kill them, you think that that alone is murder? No. All you have to do is be angry with your brother. Be angry with your brother, and you are a murderer. It is a very awful thing that Cain did. He hated and he murdered his brother. But how much different is that? How far off the track is that when we are angry with our brethren? Do we love our brothers and sisters in a way in which always glorifies God? I don't think any of us could say, of course we do. I think all of us would say, no, we don't. We look at Cain and we go, what a horrible man. I remember a story that one of my professors in seminary, he was sitting listening to this liberal speak about something that was just off base in the Bible. And she was talking about uh, the person who was speaking was a she. She was teaching and all, just all, a big mess anyway. In any case, the professor was sitting there amidst this large crowd listening to this lady. She was supposed to be a scholar talking about the Pharisees and how, while he was listening to her, saying, Lord, I am so glad that you didn't allow me to be like this woman. You know, just so off base and so way out. Then after it broke, they were walking down the hall and he passed by a mirror that in this hallway and all these pictures of kind of a fancy place. And he looked in the mirror and it kind of hit him at that moment. There he was looking at a Pharisee because he, he really wasn't loving. Instead, he was being exceedingly judgmental, just like the Pharisee was. Thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like this guy here. Look at all the good things I do. Jesus tells us that we have to look to our brothers and our sisters and act in a way that is not pharisaical. He rebukes the Pharisees for acting pharisaical. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, that being angry with your brother, saying stupid or you fool to your brother is just as bad as murder. We look to Cain and we cringe. Look at him. Sin jumped on him and overwhelmed him. His sinful desires enticed him to commit a heinous crime. But, don't ever disassociate yourself with Cain and his action. For each day we are incensed or angered or bothered or embittered or upset or agitated or disturbed with our brethren. We're on that track. We're on that road. We know we have all been murderers. You might say, but I don't kill people. Well, God looks at that as if it's the same. One punishment will be greater than the other. Understand that if we hate our brother, we will receive our due punishment as a result if we don't repent of that. 
Cain will receive his greater punishment for hating and murdering physically his brother. God is holy. And it doesn't matter how his holiness comes into contact with one sin or the other. Both of them are sin. They'll just retain a greater punishment. When you're mad at your spouse, when you yell at the kids, when you have a heated disagreement with a friend, and you don't do it in a manner of godliness, be angry and sin not. There's a right way to do it. But you don't do it in a manner in which it is godly and holy for righteous ends, then you are a murderer. We are instead to be protectors of our brothers and sisters. We are to be our brother's keeper. Each day we should ask ourselves, how can I bless my brother or sister today? How can I bless my wife, my husband, my children, my brother, my sister, my friend? How can I be my brother's keeper? What can I do? Most of the time, and at least most of the churches that I've ever attended, people run so fast out of church that they can't get to know their brother and sister, much less help them or care for them or get to know them or befriend them. How could they possibly be their brother's keeper? They don't know who their brother is. We are so individualistic that we actually revamp the whole idea of the brotherhood. Remember the Three Musketeers? The Three Musketeers were part of uh, the French special forces, so to speak, in the day. And the reason that it was so special and good was because they were this brotherhood together. And that cliche, all for one and one for all. But when we do what Cain does, it's all for one and all for one. Or maybe all for one and one for all only when I deem it convenient. Or maybe all for one and one for all if he's already done something good for me. It doesn't become what God requires of us to love one another. Their blood, the emotional and physical blood, cries out to God. The act itself will cry out to God because God is holy. Take a lesson from the greatest keeper of the brethren, which is Christ. Christ's blood cries out much like that of Abel's, but for a different reason. The blood of Christ cries out from the grave. It does. Hebrews 12 and verse 24 says, But Christ's blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. One theologian said this, Thus the Bible speaks of two kinds of blood and their voices before God. One of these is millionfold, and its message is accusation. The other is the blood of the one, and it brings healing. Christ is the ultimate brother's keeper. Not only does he care for us, but as Matthew Henry keenly stated, Abel's blood cried for vengeance, Christ's blood cries for pardon. That Jesus would actually come and not only be a keeper of the brethren, but so much so that he would give his own life and bleed right to the ground as a result and die for us. He came to care for his sheep. He came to wash the disciples' feet. He came to die for his friends. The Gospel of Mark says 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That, take a lesson. Be a servant. Be the least. Be your brother's aid. Be his keeper, not his murderer. When you want to be incensed with your brethren, you lack forgiveness in your heart. Decide who you would rather be like, Cain or Christ. In a certain way, sermon could be titled that, Cain or Christ. Who are you? In unforgiveness and hatred and pride and envy, Cain murdered his brother. And all of us are completely capable of those emotions and actions. Capable of that. In complete forgiveness and unwavering devotion and love, Christ differently died for his friends as his brother's keeper. He is the firstborn among many brethren. Through his voluntary death, he makes it possible for us to be each other's keeper in belief. When we are not our brother's keeper, we copy Cain in unbelief. And each one of us, aided by the Holy Spirit, can be capable of following through and doing what Christ did as well. Christ sets our example. Christ demonstrates how we are to be our brother's keeper. Otherwise, we would be determined to destroy our brothers for our own self-righteous goals to be better than, which is the sin of pride, which is the very thing we talked about that was the epitome of the fall. Why? Because of Adam's unbelief. In, in this, we should see the fall repeated over and over like a distant echo that just continues to echo. What will we do? Christ comes that we might break out of that echo, that we would then love our brethren and be our brother's keeper. Who do you want to be like? Who are you like? Who were you like this last week? Cain or Christ? And what will you be like this next week? Let's ask that the Lord would aid us to not be like Cain, but to be like our Lord, who is selfless. Let's pray. Mighty Lord, we are set before us with a choice to love our brethren or not, to be our brother's keeper or not. It is very easy for us, Lord, to be individuals. The fall has so rent our heart, our minds, our souls, even our physical bodies, that in our total depravity, Lord, we often become very individualistic and we do not look out for one another. In this particular passage from Genesis, we find very clearly that Cain and his unbelief demonstrated his wickedness. And as a result of that wickedness, O oh God, he so sinned against you and even killed his brother. Mighty God, we pray that you would help us not to be that way, but instead, Almighty oh Lord, that we would epitomize Christ, demonstrate Christ's selflessness. He was the perfect brother, not only in life, but also in his death and giving up his life for us, that we may live righteously before you. 
We ask, O God, that you would help us in these things. And we pray that you would help us to be and call, recall to memory more often that we are our brother's keeper. Help us to do so, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.